So just lay out a second. It, we were at an hour 20, so I needed to break it up. Oh, okay. Let yeah. Me- Well, hello, FC Dallas Curious fans, and welcome to episode number 56 of Third Degree, the podcast. We are, of course, still in the middle of the COVID-19 coronavirus MLS shutdown, so there's not a lot of current activity to talk about. We can only spend so many weeks talking about Lucci having videos for his players and individual workouts with cones, which is pretty damn boring. So in order to try and spice up the podcast a little bit and give us something to talk about, uh, I've chosen to do a historical look back through the the, uh, history of FC Dallas, through the 25 seasons of FC Dallas. Today is the Dallas burn era of uh, that look back. And joining me for this purpose is none other than El Jefe himself, the first fan, as we affectionately call him, the founder of the very first FC Dallas supporters group called the Inferno, Dustin Christman. Dustin, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. Um, I've transition to the portion of the the shelter in place where I'm part of a podcast. So I'm, I'm glad that you have helped me through this. <laughs> yeah. The shelter in place is a new experience for all of us. Certainly we've never seen something like this in our lifetime, I imagine. All right. Let's start off way back even before uh, Major League Soccer started. Uh, Dustin, I knew of you back in, oh, I want to say, 95 probably because I, I was doing some research um, when I was in grad school on major league soccer and I became aware of you early, early on. So when did you exactly get started uh, in terms of following the league, collecting information in the league and doing what you were doing uh, before even Dallas had a team? Okay. So this is going to take a little bit of setup here. Uh, yeah, I, I come at this whole fandom, the sports fandom thing, uh, basic, uh, basically through family. Um, my uncle, uh, who's never been married, uh, surprisingly, once, and I say that a little bit sarcastically once you hear his story, he has been to every single University of Texas football and baseball game, home and away, for the last 40 something years. Wow. He is literally, yeah, he is literally married uh, to the university of Texas athletics. And so when I was a student at UT, uh, he, I I would meet him a lot of times over, uh, over along uh, the first base side of uh, Dishfalk field where he and some friends known as the wild bunch would, uh, you know, vocally support uh, the UT baseball team. And since they were sitting right above the dugout for the opposing team, uh, rag the, the opposition as well. So this is my, this is where I come by my, 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 uh, this was my sports fandom upbringing. And so I didn't, I initially did not like soccer for until basically I got the chance to, uh, attend the Germany-South Korea game at the 94 World Cup at the Cotton Bowl. Uh, I was a couple months out of college at that point, and, you know, I, I went and asked my boss, hey, uh, you know, because it was in the afternoon on a weekday, I said, hey, can I uh, cut out to go to the game? He said, yeah, this is once in a lifetime. So I went to the game, 
and just seeing the, the passion of the fans and, you know, seeing the game on the field. And it was a hell of a game. Uh, those of you who remember it, remember that Germany went up 3-0 at halftime and then completely fell apart in the second half. It just ran out of gas. And the Koreans, who could run all day and did run all day, scored two goals in the second half to make things interesting, but Germany won. So, and at that point, I said, wow, I was hooked on the game. Of course, in 1994, there was no professional league in this country, save for the APSL and the USISL uh, 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 teams. And so there was rumblings about this, uh, this new league that would be coming called Major League Soccer. And I was like, great. As who knows if we're ever going to get a team in Dallas. And so fast forward to... Uh, June of 1995, story in the Dallas Morning News saying, yes, Dallas is going to get a team in Major League Soccer. And I'm like, great. So they announced the the first general manager of the team, Billy Hicks. And so they have the press conference down at City Hall to, uh, to, to uh, introduce them. And I go, uh, you know, I basically crash it. I'm not a member of any sort of media, you know, but they weren't exactly checking press credentials <laughs> when they came in. So I just walked right in. And, you know, after the press conference was over and I, I went up to Billy, and I said, hey, I have this idea that I want to basically start a Sam's Army like group uh, that's that's going to support this new team. And he was like, great now he had no idea at the time of what was gonna of what that was gonna be and frankly neither did i um <laughs> and so and at that point i you know then uh took it upon myself to start the the first uh website devoted to the team because you know this was 1995 nobody was on the internet uh, and so, you know, it's, it's something that I set up and, you know, there was really information sparse at that point, uh, because, you know, it was a team that just had been announced a few days earlier. So, you know, what information is there going to be? Oh, there's the fact, oh yeah, we're going to have a team here pretty soon. But gradually, you know, that started, you know, developing and, you know, so, you know, anything that I could find in the paper and back in those days, you know, the morning news didn't have a, a paywall. So, you know, they put something in the paper and it's on their website and I linked to it and there, there you go. There's, uh, I've got content for my Dallas burn website. <laughs> and so, and then away we went. Well, as a side note, I was also at that Germany, South Korea game. So let's, as it the, was hot. It, it was, was hot. hot. It was nasty hot. <laughs> So as we as we started getting closer to the start of the league, uh, the teams began to get players allocated to them, and the and the ones that came to Dallas that were um, ones people had heard of, obviously, were Hugo Sanchez and Leno Alvarez. So, um, give us your thoughts or your early impressions as the team started to come together. Well, I remember back in those days that I was hopping mad that the uh, the the Dallas team was not getting any. Uh, of the USA World Cup 94 heroes. You know, literally every single team in the league other than uh, Dallas. Well, maybe Tampa. I don't, I don't know if Tampa got any uh, World Cup 94 players. But literally everybody else in the league 
uh, got, you know, some USA 94, uh, you know, veteran, you know, uh, John Harks and at DC and Eric Winald in San Jose and, and, uh, Alexi Lawless and Mike Burns in, uh, New England. And, you know, so I, I was hopping mad about that. I was like, okay, but, uh, you know, I was pretty much, uh, you know, but the fact, but when we got Hugo Sanchez and, Lando Alvarez. I said, okay, these guys are, you know, somewhat, you know, th- th- these guys are good. So, okay, we're not getting any of the 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 local heroes, but we're getting somebody that is some players that you know have actually done something somewhere along the way. You know, we weren't getting a bunch of uh, you know APSL and uh, you know indoor castoffs, you know, as our allocated players. Um, so that that was fine. I mean, and and honestly, uh, again, I did not really start following soccer until 1994. So you could have told me that Joe Blow was like this really great <laughs> player, and I would have been like, "Hot damn!" Uh, so all that I knew at that point were you know my heroes from '94, and you know I didn't know that. You know, Hugo Sanchez was like literally the that the hottest scorer in one of the best leagues in the world for several years straight. I didn't know that. You know, I had to find that out through research. And I was like, oh, and then I did. I said, oh, okay, that's a pretty uh, pretty impressive achievement right there. And you know, Leonel Alvarez. Okay, he he was he he was a uh, it was a starter for the Colombian team in the '94 World Cup. So okay, he's probably pretty good. And, you know, so it was, it was, it was, so those two guys I was really impressed with. Um, you know, the Washington Rodriguez and Mark Santel allocations, uh, they, they kind of flew under the radar a bit for me. And, uh, you know, but, you know, Hugo Sanchez and uh, Lionel Alvarez definitely got my attention. Now, I, I remember distinctly, now, I'm not going to say watching the draft. I remember when the draft happened and there was a list of them players that were put out that inaugural draft. And, and, and I remember thinking, I don't know if you had similar thoughts. I remember thinking, boy, I have no idea who any of these guys are. <laughs> you know, you're reading the list of players and you're like, okay, he's a forward. Okay. It's like, I didn't know. And I, I was a soccer follower. And I still, 90% of them, I had no clue who they were. So it was, you know, all of us were going into that first season blind. We had no idea what we were going to get. Yeah, I was at the uh, the draft party that the Burn had across the street. Their their, uh, their initial headquarters uh, for those people who don't know were was right there on McKinney Avenue, right across the street from the Hard Rock Cafe. So they had their draft party at the Hard Rock Cafe, and they had a live uh, they they had the the hard line from the ticket there at the uh, at the draft party, and so. Those of you who remember, well, I mean, it doesn't take too much to remember Mike Reiner because he, you know, he, but Greg Williams, he, he was similar to, to Ryan's in that, you know, didn't really have much time for the game of soccer. So the two of them, you know, doing a live spot from the Hard Rock Cafe for the, for a major league soccer draft party, uh, you know, you could see the, the huge question marks above their heads as, they were announcing over there. Yes, the burn has uh, drafted Jason Crease, <laughs> and and you know, to be fair, I, I wasn't much better off. Uh, you know, the only difference between me and them is that 
I had no idea who those guys were, but I figured they were worth my time. Whereas those guys is like, well, okay, it's a paycheck, you know. <laughs> we we forget how off the radar uh, Jason Christ was. You know, I, I believe oh, yeah. he was something like a fifth or, or or sixth round selection. I can't remember exactly. And it yeah, was, fifth. Fifth, yeah, and people even at the time were like, "Well, that guy's never going to pan out." You know, it, little did we know later what what a great player he would become. Of course, yeah, and I, I could, I the only players I can tell you from that draft are uh, Ted Eck, He was number one, right? And Jason Christ was in the fifth round. Everyone else, not so much. Yeah, not so much. All right, so at the time, I was still living in Boston as I was uh, just finishing up uh, school up there. Um, so I was not here in Dallas for the first season. Um, but you were, so, um, leading up to the first home opener first, tell us a little bit about, I'm, I'm assuming that the Inferno got going for the very first game. So if you could tell us a little bit about how the Inferno happened, because I think it was an important component of the burn years of FC, of FC Dallas, and also into that first home opener where there's 27,000 people at the cotton bowl. Yeah. So, one of the other things that I started at the same time as uh, the, uh, the my my really rinky dink website was a uh, email discussion list, which you know I remember that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you know, for 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 those of you kids out there, um, you know, in the days before you know, social media and, and discussion boards and all that, you know, you literally had email discussion lists where somebody where you would send an email. To a, an address and then it would get forwarded to all these people and then they would reply to it and get forwarded back and so you would you know you would literally carry on discussions through email and so if there was a particularly hot topic you might your inbox might get filled up with like a, a hundred emails <laughs> you know where people were giving their hot sports opinions on this you know player or this game or whatever so before the uh you know in the run-up to the in the months leading up to the first game, you know, I kind of started and said, okay, we're going to do a supporters group here. And, um, and one of the things I, I did on my, uh, on my website was, okay, you know, and so a lot of people said, oh yeah, I'd like to do, to be part of this as well. And so one of the things that we put up on the website is like, okay, what should we name the supporters group? And the, uh, the two finalists, if I remember correctly, were the Inferno and the Burn Ward, which, mm. uh, yeah, which, you know, so, some people, I, I got, I got some pushback about the Burn Ward from some adults who said, well, you know, that may not be, go over very well among, you know, since, you know, Dallas is home to a, a really uh, big burn center. And I was like, Okay, well, hopefully that <laughs> maybe it doesn't win, you know. And so the inferno was chosen, and so there was all these people that were brought together in on the internet back in the mid '90s, before anyone had almost anyone had heard of the internet. And so we said, okay, we're going to be part of the supporters group. We're going to sit over in the corner and all that and stuff because they, you know, pretty much they they the we the ends of the cotton bowl were, you know, are there, you know, a hundred yards away from the field or however far it was. And so they, they put us in the corner. So we'd be right there up on the field and right. yet not taking up and yet not taking up valuable, uh, sideline real estate, uh, real estate. <laughs> uh, and so we had literally never seen 
Well, m- many of us had never seen, a few of us had seen each other before that first game. And so we were like, okay, we're going to have our tailgate in this part of the, uh, uh, the Fair Park parking lot. And so literally a whole lot of people who coming together for the first time in this. And so, and then we were like, okay, we're here. Okay. It's about half an hour till game time. Let's go in. And so we've, uh, uh, assumed our, our, place in the cotton bowl which uh was you know right there right over one corner and then we uh we had our drums and our you know uh and our uh you know noisemakers and whatever else and proceeded to come up with any any chance that we could at that point i remember uh, from the burn days and the cotton bowl days that the cotton bowl was universally considered across the league the best surface period Far yes. and away. Yes. Was it was it great right from the get go in '96? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean the con. I mean, you know, if it weren't for the burn, the Cotton Bowl would have been used what three days a year. You know, for the Texas OU game, for the uh, Fair Park Classic, and for the uh, for the for the January first game before it moved to Jerry World. So literally three days a year. So and oh yeah, SMU was also playing its. Uh, home games there at that time so you know in april of 96 yeah the fields was the field was in pretty good shape and yeah i mean you look and we were close enough to the field where you could actually look at the field and you could say wow this this looks this looks like a almost like astroturf it's so smooth and green uh so yeah it was it was a really great surface you could tell it was now you know, later on in the season, the season once SMU started playing there, and they started having to mark all the the football lines in white and the soccer lines in yellow, you could start seeing getting chewed up a little bit. But yeah, it was a really great field for most of that first season. So people may not remember or may not be aware. I haven't looked it up. Is that the club started really well? Started six and two, so I'm sure the fans are all feeling really good. And there were some pretty lopsided wins that year: four one over San Jose, four one over New England, five two over LA. And the, the most interesting thing about the LA game uh, is that is in that game is one of what I think is one of the signature moments in the entire history of the franchise. Um, maybe top 10, maybe top 20, and that's Hugo Sanchez's bicycle kick, which was one of the goals of the year that season. Um, that's basically a legendary moment in franchise history. It happens pretty quickly, right, in the first half of the season, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I almost want to say it was – I want to say it was in his uh, first game with the club, which wasn't until May because he was still uh, fin- finishing up his season with Celaya in Mexico. And so he, you know, he finishes up his season, and then he comes to Dallas. And the scene at the airport – Back in those pre nine eleven days, where you know any Joe Blow could walk up to a gate and uh, you know and, and greet a player as he's stepping off a plane, uh, it, it was a mad scene at DFW when he's stepping off the plane. You know everybody, you know everybody and their brother who uh, who wanted to see Hugo Sanchez was there, and so he was. You could see this look on his face, like. On the one hand, he's a little bit taken aback by all of this. On the other hand, he is like, well, uh, of course they're, you know, turning out for me. I'm El Pinta Pichichi, you know. Why wouldn't they be turning out like this for me? And so he, you know, he was there. And so, you know, like a week later, he was in his first game. And that's when he scored the bicycle. 
and everybody was, you know, just losing their minds at that point because, oh man, we were a great team already, and now we got, now we got Hugo Sanchez. Hot damn! You know, this is this team is going. Uh, this team is <laughs> going to the championship. But you know, might have been a little bit of irrational exuberance on our part <laughs> here. Here with uh, twenty-five years of hindsight, right? Um, so that season, uh, you have Diego Sonora, who's a great allocation. Mark Santel, as you mentioned, Mark Dodd has a great season. Jason Kreiss leads the team in scoring, and 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 along with Lionel, all five of those guys make the All Star game. Uh, Dodd ends up winning Keeper of the Year. Alvarez is named to MLS Best Eleven. Uh, we'll get back to Dodd in a little bit. Um, but honestly, in 1996, I think you could arguably make the case that Lionel Alvarez should have been league MVP, not just uh, franchise MVP. And he honestly set the tone for really over a decade for this franchise. Yeah, I mean, I, at that point, the the team's record with and without Lionel Alvarez was so radically different. And you could actually measure this pretty easily because, number one, Lionel Alvarez got a yellow card in damn near every game, which means, you know, every five games he got to sit a suspension because of accumulation. And number two, the league didn't stop for international breaks at that point. So when Colombia had a game and called him up, you know, we were, we were missing uh, Lionel Alvarez. So there was a non-insignificant uh, number of games that he missed that year. And so the team's record, you know, without him in the lineup was so dramatically different from with him in it. I mean, you know, he you could you could sense his presence when he was out there on the field. Like, okay, you twerps are going to do what I ask you to without any sort of uh, dispute, and this is how it's going to be. I mean, he just took the team by the scruff of the neck. And these, I mean, there were a lot of young players on that team, a bunch of a, a bunch of guys who been playing in beer league so this was like literally their first really truly professional experience and you know so and so meanwhile Lionel Alvarez he you know he's been a professional in this game for you know however many years at that point so he knew what it meant and he, you know he was a very much dominant personality on that team and really took it by the scruff of the neck and whatever good things that that team did that year it was due in large part to number 14 yeah jason christ has said that he's the leonel is the biggest influence on his entire career and i i'll tell you two stories that i think are fun one i think i've told before which is that brian haynes says that um, after they were done training as a burn club that Lionel would take the entire midfield and he would organize his own training session where the four or five midfielders would play against a Hispanic local side, four players or five players versus 11. And they would play those guys in the afternoon in order to, which is, you know, four versus 11 is crazy. Although you are, it is professionals versus amateurs, but nonetheless, and then my other story was, as I mentioned at the time I was in new England, I was working as the red hat for the revolution, which is the guy that tells him to kick off. And I remember distinctly when the burn came up there, um, Alvarez and Sanchez, of course, are going through their typical dramatics that they do. And the cloud is on them and booing them and having a hard time. And there's a moment where 
Alvarez and Sanchez come over to the home crowd, basically, and show, I think it was Lionel's leg. They pull up Lionel's shorts, and Ugo gestures to his leg. And on the inside of his thigh are these four distinct black marks from cleats with blood trails running down the inside of his thigh from somebody from the revolution that had stomped his and cleated him on the inside of his leg. And, you know, he's just playing right through that. Like it's nothing other than his complaining to the referee, but it's like, that's the kind of guy he was. He would literally run through the proverbial run through walls. Now this guy literally would play with his leg falling off. Well, yeah. And he, you know, the reason why he was a, almost a guarantee to pick up a, booking in every game is because he gave as as good as he got it i mean if you if you think you were going to kick Lionel alvarez and there wasn't going to be his payback coming uh you, you were dead wrong and he gave the payback and he got he you know the referee rung him up and then you know every five games he would uh sit his suspension um but yeah i mean he he was he, he his face is indelibly stuck in my mind when I think about, you know, soccer hard men, because he was very much one of those guys, you know, the guy, he was tough, you know, he would give out some punishment and yet he also had some, uh, measurable skill. I mean, the guy, you, you know, you're not playing for, uh, Columbia in the mid nineties, which was arguably one of the best national teams in the world at that stage unless you're you know unless you're pretty good and the guy the guy was i mean, he i will forever have a soft spot in my heart for Lionel Alvarez i mean the guy was and i never i no i won't say never i saw him smile <laughs> maybe three times in the in the number of years that the the burn had him and all of those times were off the field he never had a smile. The burn could score and everybody be celebrating. He didn't ha- even have a smile then. I mean, the guy was all business when he stepped over that line onto the, onto the pitch. And he was, I mean, nothing but a professional. So the burn in the year on a two and six run, which is a, not a good finish. The wheels are coming off a little bit, but they still finished second in the West. Um, and then the, in the playoffs, they run into Kansas City. And, and I remember Kansas City being one of the first ever rivals for FC Dallas. Before Chicago, before L.A., before anybody, I remember Kansas City being the hated team with punchy Ron Newman over there on the bench yelling at everybody. Oh, yeah. And uh, in those 96 playoffs, they ended up losing two games to one um, FC Dallas. FC Dallas, excuse me. The Dallas used to have it. The Dallas Burn did. Uh, specifically, like, there was a, a, a loss in game three at back in Dallas, that 3-2 loss. Would you could you think you could make the case that that was the start of the hatred with Kansas City that that playoff game? Well, you know when I when I uh, yeah I mean I think it was it started before then because Ron Newman I mean for for those people who have no knowledge of this from the NASL days and the MISL days he was always a, a bit of a character and. That certainly continued on when he was uh, uh, the head guy of the Wiz. And the Wiz, that's the, right. <laughs> yes, the the Kansas City Wiz. Yeah. And so he he was certainly uh, a character then, gesticulating and you know 
making a, a fool out of himself on the, the sideline. But, you know, you don't have the amount of success that he had had over the years unless he knew a few things about the game. But, and he, he had, his team in Kansas City was, you know, basically a combination of indoor guys, you know, who, you know, I, I was kind of dismissive of, even though, you know, most of the guys for the burn, you know, had a lot of indoor experience. And, you know, and a bunch of, you know, you know, donkeys, you know, especially in, in, along the back line. So they were a very hateable team even before that, uh, that series. And the way that the burn lost to them w- was so, it was tough because they actually had, they had the lead in game two and, you know, game, uh, I think, um, the way they did it in those days is they did the first, I'm trying to remember how, how it went. They did the first game in the lower seed and then the second and third game, if necessary, in the home of the upper higher seed, you know, basically to save on travel costs. We weren't going back and forth. Right. Right. And the same reason for the, the two, three, two format that they have in the NBA finals, you know, so what is so in the first game in Kansas City, the burn had the lead, if I remember correctly, and yes, they uh, did. Dante Washington had, you know, he had an open goal shot, you know, that basically would have put the get that game away, and it was saved off the line, you know, at the last second. Uh, the Wiz come back and you know win the game, and so the burner down one nothing, in, in the series. And so they come back to Dallas. Dallas wins, and you know, and then in Game Three, they lose to the Wiz in a shootout. <laughs> the dreaded which shootout. Was, yeah. yeah, it was. I mean, I I am probably one of the the. I wouldn't say the biggest shootout apologists uh, that you will find. I mean, I, I will say there's a, a a place for them because. Some games there was just no other entertainment other than the shootout, <laughs> um, but but it is still a crappy way to decide a game, and not only to decide a game but to decide the pivotal the the clinching game three of a playoff series. It was just it just left a bad taste in my mouth, and it was just the worst thing ever. And so at that point, you know, I just had. The, the disdain I had for the the Kansas City franchise was cemented. Well, the, people don't know, a lot of people won't know, that uh, the burn finished with an average of 16,000 people in the stands that year, which is the third highest in franchise history and just loses out of the number two spot by only barely a little. But on to 1997, uh, Hugo Sanchez leaves, Leonel Alvarez leaves to go to Nacoxa for what I can only assume was a fat uh, paycheck. Excuse me, yeah. Vera Cruz. Vera, Veracruz? I thought it was Nacoxa. Yep, it was Veracruz. See, you, you know better than me because I was still in New England at this time. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> so Alvarez well, is gone. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're saying this because, you know, I'm, I'm 48 years old and there's a lot of stuff I'm forgetting at this point. So I'm glad that I, I have do have these moments of uh, lucidity. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Google says you're right. It is indeed Veracruz. My mistake. See, I learn something new every day. 
Um, regardless, that's probably a pretty good paycheck, I'd imagine. Washington Rodriguez oh, yeah. is gone. In comes Daniel Pineda to re- uh, replace you know, Alvarez. Alain Suter comes in, the, the great uh, Swiss, Swiss playmaker. And Zarco Rodriguez, I did not realize, was an, I had forgotten was an allocation. He comes in that season. And yep. Damian, come, Damian Alvarez, who's another mercurial, talented attacking player, comes in. And then Wade Weber was added via the draft. So there's a lot of good ads. Um, Suter, in particular, was amazing, particularly right out of the gate. He was the month of uh, player of the month for May that very first season. Um, and between him and, and Damian, who's of another phenomenal talent but was obviously a big headache, those two guys were pretty electric, I remember, in 97 for the burn. Oh, yeah. And then they already had uh, Dante Washington, who they acquired through trade in 96, who was uh, knocking in the goals. And it was, it was, I mean, these guys were so good. I mean, these guys were so effective that Jason Christ, who everybody, all, all anybody remembers about Jason Christ is that he, you know, he knocked in, you know, goals by the ton for this, for this team, but he couldn't really get on the field that much for the burn in 97. Uh, I mean, he couldn't get in. I mean, he was always sort of a tweener player, uh, you know. You know, neither you know neither a pure striker nor a pure attacking midfielder. Uh, so he was always, you know, you know, where do you put him? Uh, one of those situations. So he couldn't, you know, get in at at a attacking midfield uh, because of Alain Suter, and he couldn't get in at forward because you had Dante Washington and Damian, who were also really productive. So the guy, I mean, the guy who we think of as one of the uh, the four guys on this on this club's Mount Rushmore. I mean, he could literally could not get on the field very much that season. Yeah, that was the only season Jason did not lead the team in scoring during for like the first four or five years. Yep. Yeah. So that season, uh, Damian, Mark Dodd, Diego Sonora, Alain Suter, Dante Washington, Mark Santel all make the All Star game. But um, to be honest, and and looking back now. 1997 really is the season of Mark Dodd. He had 183 saves, which is still the club record and still second in MLS to this day for a single season. And of course, there's the 1997 U.S. Open Cup final, which is Dodd's, if you want, masterpiece game where he he plays like two days after his mother had passed away. And he pretty much single-handedly won the first piece of silverware in, in franchise history. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Mark Dodd, it was... I mean, he he is probably one of the I, I would say probably one of the most underappreciated uh, players in this franchise's history uh, because he was so so important in that first couple couple three years. I mean, because he he literally saved. Uh, everything that came into his area, and at that point he was already um, a, and I'm going to use, I'm going to say euphemistically, an experienced goalkeeper. <laughs> I mean, but he had command of his area. He uh, could read the game very well, and whenever he would make the save, a lot of times before the the uh, opposing player even shot. Uh, you know, there are a lot of goalkeepers who do it on, on physical talents. Uh, he did it pretty much on guile. And he, the, 
he was a huge reason why the team did as well as it did in the first years. I mean, the team made the playoffs, which you know, for however many years straight before, you know, 2003, which you know, I'd rather not uh, talk about too much. And he was a big reason why, because you knew that if you could just uh, put in, you know, a couple goals at the other end, Dodd was going to save your bacon at the back. Um, he was, and he is, and he is a nothing but a great guy to talk to as well. I mean, all of those guys from the early years, the guys who had been, you know, all the guys outside of the allocated players in those first few years are guys that had been making, you know, a couple, 300 bucks a game playing in the various different lower level leagues and indoor soccer. And, you know, all of a sudden they're in a big time professional league, but they're still the same guys. There's, they still knew where they came from. And so they were all very approachable and that included Mark Dodd. So you'd, you know, you'd run into them, you know, after a game or, you know, in the, in around town or whatever, and you'd say hi to him and he would be, he would, he would be sociable and I'm sure he still is. And, you know, you ask him, Hey, how about the, and he'll, he'd talk to you for a few minutes. He was definitely not one of those guys like, Oh yeah, you know, beat it like so many pro athletes are nowadays. Um, but yeah, I have nothing but good things to say about, uh, Mark Dodd. I mean, he was, and I will forever put him on my top five goalkeepers. You know, if we're, if we're doing a top five goalkeepers in franchise history in another 25 years at when this team is 50 <laughs> years old, uh, I'm still going to have them in my uh, top five, no matter, uh, you know, who, who comes in the next 25 years. Yeah. I, I remember watching the open cup final and I remember, I think I remember that I didn't know much, much about the open cup before I remember it happening. And it happened after the season was actually over. Yep. I'm sure you'll remember. Um, and it was a, it was a being on TV. I remember, at least my memory says I watched it live. And I, I remember, I think, you know, jumping up and down when Zarco makes the PK at the end of the game. I remember it being a long, cold night and a slog and a long game. Um, yep. Do you have memories of that game when it happened? Well, I, I was at the game. So well, then I'm sure were, you do. Yeah, so there were six, six or eight of us that drove up in a van from uh, Dallas to Indianapolis for that game. And... Uh, we were joined in the stands there by uh, a lot of uh, Tom Sohn's uh, friends and family who came over from Chicago, you know, because he was still with the uh, with the burn at that point. Right. And so, yes, it was cold, and Dodd played out of his mind. And one thing that I will always remember about that game is that I mean, both goalkeepers, both. Uh, Scott Garlick for DC and, and Dodd for Dallas, they both played out of their minds. And, you know, you'll hear about a nil-nil game and you, you, the normal assumption is, oh God, it was dreary. But there, this was the exception that proved the rule because both teams were, you know, they were playing for it. They were, they were, they both wanted to win this game and they were taking shot after shot after, and both guys were coming up huge. And I will forever say this about this game. 
Bruce Arena did Scott Garlic dirty because in extra time he subbed out Garlic right and, for Tom Prestis for the shootout and and Prestis you know he's a, he was a good goalkeeper in this league for a number of years but the reason why the Burn one and the uh, and DC United didn't is because Tom Prestis didn't not make a single save in the shootout. Uh, then again, neither did Dodd. I mean, because uh, Diego, uh, uh, excuse me, Diego Sonora, uh, Raul Diaz Arce put his uh, shot over the bar, <laughs> and so that's and so and so because of that, the uh, the burn won. But he and uh, he and Scott Garlic were he uh, Mark Don and Scott Garlic were were basically standing on their heads all night long, saving anything that came into their area that looked remotely dangerous. Um, and uh, it was very much, it was, pro- you know, you say it was probably the highlight of, uh, I cannot think of a single greater uh, performance by Dodd in his time in Dallas uh, for, uh, with the burn. I mean, and that's how it is in a lot of these, uh, in a lot of these, you know, silverware games. Is you'll have one, one or two guys who will just play out of their minds for that game, and it, and that's, and that's will be what wins the game. And on that night, it was uh, Mark Dodd who played out of his mind, and on a very cold night <laughs> after the season, and it was after the season because uh, another thing that I will forever. Uh, you know, hold against arena is that he was complaining loudly and bitterly about having to play the, the open cup final during the season. So the, the Federation said, okay, fine, we'll do it after the season. So it was like literally the week after they won their uh, second uh, MLS cup row in, in a row. And then here you go. <laughs> open yeah. cup final. Here's your reward. All right. So, uh, Further cementing the hatred of the uh, Kansas City Wiz, or maybe they were the Wizards by that point. The they were the Wizards because yeah. uh, the the electronics chain in the north sued them, right? Sued them, yeah. yeah. And so, and it was probably fortuitous that they sued them <laughs> because that was a that was one of many horrible names uh, from yeah. the early days of the league. We could do a whole episode on the poor branding at the start of MLS. All right, so oh, the burn went one and three against them in '97, but they still managed to finish third that year, and they faced LA in the playoffs. Who had finished second. Now Dallas had been one and three against LA that season. The only win came back way back in April. Uh, yet the burn swept LA in the playoffs. It was a really fantastic series, um, winning in LA on the shootout. And then Dante Washington had a brace in the, when the game came back to Dallas in, in the three Oh win. That was a pretty good series. If I remember from my, from memory. Yep. well, it was good for us, you know? Yeah. <laughs> good for the burn. And then, of course, it's always more uh, entertaining to win. Yeah, and then, of course, for not the last time, the damn Colorado Rapids knocked the burnout in round two. Yes, and that—that's the. I mean, I could remember going in to that. You know, after so the burn knock out the the L.A. and you know, it looks like they uh, Durr's got them playing well. You know, everybody, all the you know the the the, uh, the team is you know clicking on all cylinders because they finished out the season not very well if i remember correctly but we they come into the la series you know they they uh, win the shootout in la great 
and then they come home and then they flat out beat them in Dallas. And so everyone's like, okay, this is, the team has turned the corner because they had been kind of inconsistent all year. And this is where they make their big charge to, you know, MLS Cup. And then, and then Colorado, who was not very good that year, but you didn't have to be good to be all that good to make the playoffs in those days. They swept the, uh, the, uh, the Wizards, who were the number one seed in the West. And, you know, every, everybody's still thinking, oh, yeah, you know, okay, you know, you know Colorado's still not all that good. Well, <laughs> Colorado uh, pre- then proceeds to, uh, you know, basically uh, turn turn the game into in Dallas into the game one in Dallas into a slog. I think they win one nil, and then uh, Dallas. And then game two, Dallas, I think, goes up one uh, nil, and then uh, in the second half, uh, Colorado ties it, and then. I will forever have Colorado's winning goal uh, in that game too etched into my mind because it was Chris Henderson, yep. and he scores it off of a side volley. Mm. And it, it, and under normal circumstances, it would have been a really great goal. But that you know, it was the goal that you know knocked the burn out of the playoffs in <laughs> in '97. So you know, I've not, of course, I have nothing but disdain for it. And then, little did I know at that point, but this was going to be the start of twenty-something years of suffering at the hands of the Colorado Rapids. Yeah, it's the first uh, of many, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. God. Yeah. yeah, those and guys. You'll get to talk. You'll get to talk with other people about uh, the, <laughs> the SC Dallas years of suffering to the yeah. Colorado Rapids, but I'm here for the uh, for the burn years of suffering to the Colorado Rapids. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So moving on to 1998, uh, Lionel Alvarez comes back as an allocation, and the Burn fans finally got something that they had been asking for from obviously the very beginning, and that was a U.S. Men's National Team player when Chad Deering joined after the '98 World Cup. Yeah, and Chad Deering, I mean, he is, you know, uh, he he is uh, someone that, you know, I, I think was a little bit underappreciated. Definitely. Uh, because, you know, for years, like you said, the, the fans said, oh, yeah, give us a, a U.S. World Cup player. And so we get one. And he's off the team that finishes 32nd out of 32 in France. Mm. Uh, and so was, there's almost a collective, yeah, not like that, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, not what we meant. You know, yeah. Yeah. You know, as Oscar Wilde once said, you know, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. Right. Uh, so, so, but the, the thing about, the thing that I will always remember about the 98 season is how it started so promisingly because the team that seemed to you know that was on its way on the on its way up at the end of '97, you know the Colorado series notwithstanding, you know they won silverware and they started off the the '98 season pretty well because you know you've got Alan Suter, you've got Dante Washington, you've got Damian Alvarez, and now you've got Lionel Alvarez it, to add to to add a little bit of uh, steel in the midfield. And you think, okay, this team is going to go places. And they started out really well. And then Alain Suter uh, gets injured. And he gets injured in the most 
uh, Dallas burn league runway uh, possible. You know, he steps into a hole in the field at Green Hill School and uh, injures his hip. And because he's a land suitor and really isn't on board with traditional medical techniques, does not have you know, uh, any surgery or anything done on it. And so that's the last we ever see of Alain Suter. And the, the team is unable to do anything offensively the the end of the year and suffer some pretty, pretty staggering losses to, you know, everybody, but particularly the LA Galaxy, who, uh, who were scoring goals that year as easily as most people breathe. Yes. Um, and so, the, you know, they rung up... Uh, I think it's still a league record for the biggest win ever. I believe so, yes. In Dallas uh, that June on a rainy Thursday night that was broadcast nationally by ESPN2. Um, I was there. Yes. And um, the... the uh, eight to one. Eight to one, yeah. yes. And, and the, 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 the one of the more underappreciated things about the game was that Damian Alvarez actually scored an Olimpico in that game. Yeah, first you know, in history, directly right? Off, yeah, directly off the corner. And everybody forgets that. And <laughs> everybody remembers that uh, Harut Karapetian scored a, uh, a hat trick, which turned an already bad 5-1 to one, uh, uh, deficit into an 8-1 to one loss. And he scored this hat trick in 10 minutes, at, in the last 10 minutes of the game. Natural hat trick. And yeah. Natural hat trick, yes. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, it was a bad, it was raining, and I think that was the first time that the the fans ever really got on uh, Durr, Dave Durr at that point, even right. though, you know, uh, he wasn't, I mean, it was, I mean, he put his best team out there. Uh, and, you know, the fact is that Lionel Alvarez got himself sent off early in the first half. And so LA mm. was already lethal in, uh, in 98 offensively. And so if you give them a man advantage, well, you know, Katie barred the door. So, but the fans got on uh, Dave Durr and, you know, in retrospect, unfairly. You know, most of the time when you get on the coach in soccer, it's pretty unfair. But, you know, I think that that night particularly so. Well, we can't talk about 98 without talking about, um, well, two good acquisitions. One was that Matt Jordan was drafted, but that doesn't come important until later. And they, but the more important one is that uh, later in the year, Damian, who we've been talking about a lot so far, got traded for Oscar Pereja from New England. Now, Oscar only yep. played six games that year for Dallas, but I mean, little did we know, right, what a huge piece he was going to become. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it, when the trade happened, I was like, wow, this, you know, who's this uh, Pereja guy? And already you could tell that he was going to be something special because I think the first game he actually played for the burn and I may, my memory on this may be completely faulty, but it was against the Metro stars and the burn actually went down two men to the metros. Mm. I think one of the, one of the red cards was uh, dished out to, to Deering, but they won the burn actually, and they actually came back 
and won. If I now that part I'm least certain about, but they won. No, they it was beat a two-zero win. Two-zero win. It was a two-zero win. Okay, yeah, but I have still, it in front of me was, as long as I know that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah. So and and you know you go up you go in on two men against anybody you know you're you're not expecting to to win no. anything. No, you're not. And I remember that Pareja, you know, put a couple of you know, help make a couple of those and help make at least one of those goals happen with a pinpoint pass. And at that point I said, well, okay, we might, we might do something this year. And so that, so he comes in and he's, you know, he, he stabilizes things. And if I remember, if I also remember correctly, the, the last second win against Chicago, I think he had the assist to uh, uh, Jorge Rodriguez, Zarco Rodriguez, on the winning goal. Because I think Dodd pick, uh, collects the ball, he passes it to Pereja, who then passes it to uh, Zarco, who then, you know, scores the goal with like two seconds left. Oh, now you're getting ahead of ourselves now. Uh-oh. Uh, All right. It's coming up. You're going to spoil it now. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, it's all right. <laughs> that was the next thing we were going to talk about. It's like you can't go through 1998 without talking about the Chicago Fire because the game you're just mentioning, the, what they and they scored with 17 seconds left on the clock when that play started. It's like that that game is the game that basically created the Chicago Fire rivalry, the Brimstone Cup rivalry, and if, and I'm sure you remember that they were um, the, the Dante Washington scored to, got, to tie the game at two in the 83rd minute. And they're literally this, the clock counted down back then. I know you remember this. Yep. Oh, and yeah. there's 17 seconds left on the clock when that play started. And I believe there were three seconds left when Zarco scored. Yep. And the, 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 the crazy thing about the fire is that coming into uh, the 98 season, I was convinced absolutely 100.00% convinced that Miami was going to be, you know, a good team and that Chicago was going to stink out loud because they were getting all these old fart uh, Eastern European players, you know, mm-hmm. purely, you know, purely for ethnic marketing reasons that these guys weren't going to be able to do crap. And then, well, as it turns out, these guys were pretty good. And, um, you know, and, and so, and they, they inflicted, they inflicted the most frustrating losses on the burn that season because the burn would, they, they beat the burn pretty, pretty solidly in Chicago. And you look at the scores and say, Oh, well, Chicago was clearly the better team on that day, but you watch the games and the burn actually played well, but they just could not break through. Right. And then meanwhile, the fire would just, you know, you know, do whatever it was. And then, the, <laughs> here, and, and then, and then here's the key component. Peter Novak would make a brilliant pass. And then all of a sudden there's a goal at the other end for the, for the fire. And, I'm, and it was so frustrating because you feel like the burn are playing well, but they just, but they, the problem with the burn in 98 is that they couldn't score to save their lives. Once they lost um, Suter, yeah. Yeah, once they lost Suter. And unfortunately for them, they, they got to play the fire after they lost Suter. And so, so it was very frustrating. And so when the burn beat them on that last second goal uh, at the Cotton Bowl, it was so cathartic. as a finally, we got these guys. And 
you know, like you said, that's probably the, the, the birthplace of that particular rivalry, of the Brimstone Cup rivalry. But I don't want to. I don't want to spoil anything. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's more to come. Any more? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So unfortunately, uh, what was already not a great season went to worse in the playoffs when FC Dallas, FC Dallas, I did it again. The Burn faced the LA Galaxy for the second year in a row, and this time the Galaxy get revenge by uh, stomping the tar out of Dallas in LA by a six-one scoreline, and then. The burn actually go up two nothing in the second game in Dallas, and and then allow the Galaxy to come back with three goals in about eight minutes to win game two and take this series. So that season ended as badly as any season. Just about. I mean, it's not just a loss; it's like a, it's a destroying loss in the playoffs. Oh yeah, it was. It was. Well, see, I remember the the first game in LA when they they stomped a six one, uh, you know, you know, score line into uh, the burn. I was like, well, yeah. that's that's what i do this year yeah Uh, yeah. (laughs) and so you know coming back to dallas they went up to nothing i said oh maybe we'll make this interesting and uh well nope (laughs) i remember that if i remember correctly uh carlos amarcio who they had you know the la had acquired mid-season because you know hey you know they didn't have enough scoring already uh you know he he got a goal or two in that game as well so that you know and you know everybody's you know at the cotton bowl saying well this was this this sucked yeah he had a brace Um, yeah yeah well wow i'm again i'm i'm gratified that you're uh uh, that you're endorsing my in the uh, the um, 6-1 game you had the brace yeah 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 Yeah. oh and the brace okay yeah Yeah. i I have no idea what he did in the the cotton ball the the cotton ball was uh ezra hendrickson paul calagiri and clint mathis was the three and then Coming back. Oh, Clint yeah. Mathis. Yeah. Yeah. And the yeah. LA version of Clint Mathis. He'll come up again later, too, by the way. Oh, great. Great. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, but that season stunk in so many reasons. Uh, probably the biggest reason why that uh, season seemed so bad is because it had come on the heels of a season which had been so promising. The 97 season was so promising because yeah. they did something in the playoffs, they won the Open Cup. It looked like they were, you know, getting it together as as a team. And then in 98, just about everything that fell apart, that could have fallen apart, did. Yeah. And Coach Durr told me fact, that was the only season he, he actually lost the locker room that year. They all tuned him out and quit listening. Oh, wow. Well, you know what? Uh, I think, uh, I think uh, a lot of the fan base, uh, you know, tuned him out. And the thing about it is, if you look at the record on the uh, the wins and losses, oh, 15 and 17, not yeah. that bad. Yeah. You know, almost 500. Now, of course, you know, you get the shootout in there, the, you know, it's kind of skewing things. But I think there were just so many really bad losses that year that a lot of people, it just seemed worse than it really was. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. All right, which now uh, brings us on to the 1999, excuse me, I can talk, which now brings us on to the 1999 season, which in fact is one of the best seasons in club history. You know, yep. other than the, really, as you say, that Suter loss last in the 98 caused big problems. But in 1999, the burn ended up 19 and 13 on 51 points. Deering and Pereja in the midfield are clicking and going crazy. Matt Jordan takes over in net. He's terrific. Paul Broom gets uh, drafted. Bobby Ryan gets drafted. And obviously, Bobby Ryan was not impactful right away, but certainly I don't think anybody could have known then what Bobby would be, what he became over the history of this franchise. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, you know, Bobby Ryan, I mean, I mean, I, I guess that's the way it goes with this 
team is like the guys that have become absolute legends for this team. They they start in such you know they start in as in such I don't want to say humble, but uh, they start in such lightly regarded places because you know my my Mount Rushmore for this team is uh, Oscar Perea, Jason Christ. Bobby Ryan and Matt Hedges. Not a single one of those players came to this team with a lot of fanfare. Right. I mean, if you look at the Mount Rushmore for, say, the Galaxy, I mean, you're going to have a lot of people put David Beckham on there. Yes. Well, there is there is no greater star that has ever existed in this league <laughs> than David freaking Beckham, and he was already one of the biggest stars in the history of the game when he got to L.A. Yeah, but in Dallas it's different. Uh, you know, every every club legend has, you know, basically made his name with the club, and Bobby Ryan is certainly no exception there. You know, because. My big memory of Bobby Ryan is that, and this I, I got a uh, I got an extra media guide uh, that year somehow, and I was going to send it to uh, everyone's favorite internet troll, Chicago Fire fan, uh, Michael Seagroves. Right. And and at the at the uh, kickoff luncheon that year, I had this extra media guide, and I wanted every single player to sign his or her uh, page in the media guide. This might have been 2000, actually. It was, it was 2000 or 2001. He wanted him to sign, each player to sign, the fire suck with the, his <laughs> signature. Bobby Ryan refused to do that. And, you know, you know he was just too dadgum nice of a guy. I mean, he was... He would not even, you know, have a little fun at the expense of this team's biggest rival at that time. And I was like, well, the kids, I was like, the guy is still fairly new. He doesn't get it yet. Well, you know what? You know, so be it. But this guy, I mean, you could see, the fact is that, you know, you could, he played, I think he played just about every position for this team, except for goalkeeper. And even if you want to break it down by, you know, you know, even if you want to get really granular by center back versus uh, outside back, you know, or he played darn near every position for this team, except for goalkeeper. Um, and that just exemplifies what he, I mean, he was the epitome of the good soldier. And he always gave 100 percent, and he and he wasn't just a, he actually. I mean, he's still up near the top, you know, not too far from the top of the scoring chart, all-time scoring charts for this team. You know, a lot of people, you know, forget that he started his life with this team as a forward, uh, kind of, as a withdrawn forward, and doing doing the you know, this sort of Jason Christ kind of, uh, uh, business. And, you know, as, and he was pretty darn good. I mean, he had a, he had a couple of hat tricks along the way and he, just the nicest guy. And I mean, there is, 
I mean, when people talk about what a loss he was when he passed in, I think, 2011, I mean, it, it is absolutely not hyperbole with this guy. I mean, he was he was a huge, 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 huge part of the spirit of this club. I agree with that completely. Uh, the other thing that happened in 1999 that was a huge, massive deal was that uh, a certain website called Third, Third Degree started doing practice observations. I imagine that was a gigantic bone for the club to get that going. No, I'm oh, just God. kidding. I mean, uh, <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean well, no, I remember uh, reading some of these practice ob- observations, and my exact thoughts were, they let them do that. They let <laughs> yeah, them they did. come in and then write down literally everything that they're doing in practice. And I was like, well, if they, if so, then, you know, more power to them. Uh, but yeah, it was, uh, I mean, I mean, all the, you know, people, I cannot, you know, I cannot for the life of me, uh, believe that, You know, people can say that Dallas is not a a soccer market and say it with a straight face because the amount of the amount of soccer knowledge and, and the soccer appreciation in this town is is far more than you find in a, a lot of other places. And I think it's a lot of it is due to, you know, literally, I guess now decades of, uh, you know, hard work by yourself, by Steve Davis, who will, you know, uh, and by Peter, who will go and talk about, you know, the game in terms more than just, you know, if if you hit the ball with the hand, that's not allowed. <laughs> yeah, um, explaining offsides, about, right? Yeah, the, yeah, the off, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would take up uh, a few newspaper columns right there. Is right. finding offsides, uh, but you know the the uh, but the fact is is that third degree was probably one of the first media outlets that I remember in this league, in this country, even. Uh, outside of the, the specialized, you know, Soccer America or any of, any of the publications in that ilk, that actually talked about the game to the level of detail that you would expect to see in baseball or football or basketball. You know, the the strategies, the you know, what is this guy trying to do here, and not just oh yeah, uh, you know, Jim Bob uh, scored a goal here, and you know. Uh, Freddie Mac you know, scored a goal at the other end. You know, just the basic, you know, hand wavy, anybody can get it sort of uh, level. Uh, but, you know, to actually talk about what each team is trying to do strategically and, you know, why that's a good thing, why that's not a good thing. I mean, that third degree was probably one of the first things that I could ever remember. And it's still probably one of the few that that I can I can, you know, talk about you know that actually covers the game to that level you know with, with a certain depth of maturity so well, that's been our goal all and, that's, it, and that's the reason why i am a patreon supporter <laughs> of third degree and you too and you mr uh, podcast listener or ms podcast listener should be one too 
because Buzz brings the the information and detail that you demand as an FC Dallas Curious listener. Uh, thank you, Dustin. I appreciate that. that. That has been our goal from the beginning to be professional and trying to give the, the, the league and the team coverage at the level that you would see for, say, the Cowboys or, or other pro sports. But let's talk more about the team. Let's go back to 1999. Um, 1999 is for sure, uh, among above anything else, is the year of Jason Christ. He leads the team in scoring for the third time in four years. He's the first American-born league MVP. He also makes the best 11, of course, when you're MVP, that happens. First 15 and 15 goal, goal and assist season in MLS history. Wins the golden boot for the league. He obviously has one of the great seasons probably the greatest season in the history of the franchise and maybe even one of the great seasons and probably right up there in the top five, certainly in terms of the MVP uh, of all time in the league in terms of individual single seasons. So I think you can't not talk about the season without talking about what a player he was that year. Oh yeah. I mean, and the, the thing about it is that I don't think, I don't think that there are many of us on the outside looking in who would have guessed that that was coming. But what I remember from that season is that uh, Coach Durr, you know, made the decision to play uh, Jason in a more advanced position, you know, play him closer to goal, you know, right. more as a, an, an, out, an outright forward. And so he got, he got so many goals that year. And I'm convinced simply because he was, you know, closer to the goal, and which, you know, <laughs> go figure, you know, closer to the goal, you know, you score more goals. But, and it seems to me that that was, that year, I mean, it seemed like there was more of a emphasis on that being his first responsibility, first and second responsibility, score goals. Because that was something that was definitely lacking in '98. It's like we we didn't have anybody who could really put the ball in the net, and so and I think the other thing that I always remember in the '99 season four is the Graziani signing, the the or excuse me trade trade yeah yes uh, because I think you know by the time the Graziani trade happened. Um, you know, people around the league, other teams around the league were starting to kind of figure this out. Okay. You know, Jason Kreitz is scoring all these goals. Maybe we should, uh, you know, devote a little bit more attention to him. And so if you look at how the team was doing that year, they were kind of, you know, he was starting to hit a, a sort of a lull in scoring and the team uh, correspondingly was kind of hitting a lull in res, uh, results. You know, they weren't getting quite the number of wins that they had been before. And then they they uh, trade, you know, the the player that nobody ever thought that they would ever trade, you know, in ever 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 ever, you know, Lionel Alvarez for Ariel Graziani. Yeah, and go ahead. I rem- and my my memory of the Graziani trade was I was uh, driving to Austin, you know, one. To, to, for to to do whatever I can't even remember, and I get the I get a call on my cell phone from Pete, and he says they just traded uh, Al- Lionel Alvarez for Ariel Graziani. I'm like, what? Because <laughs> it was so amazing to me yeah. that they would trade literally the heart and soul of the team for you know for for another forward 
Like, you know, Christ has scored a bunch of goals. What do we need another forward for? And, and, but I think Graziani getting to, to Dallas, he helped take a lot of heat off of Christ, and Christ was able to start resuming, you know, his blistering scoring pace. And he was also able to set up Graziani for a bunch of uh, goal, the goals that he had, too. So it was one of those, you know, um, you know, he didn't take, it was one of those trades, you know, you, you think about, you know, oh, you're, you're signing another forward. Is he going to take away, uh, goals from the first forward? No, he, he's helping to make more goals happen by, you know, basically, you know, providing an outlet for, for the, for the other forward. And the fact of the matter is, Christ is not, well, is not, he's not now because he's in his forties, but he was never a out, out and out striker. And Graziani was right, and uh, and that certainly those two different styles certainly complemented each other fabulously. And you know, I always think about uh, Coach Durr's, uh, uh You always want to have two kinds of soup. Uh, quote. <laughs> you know, when he was talking about uh, Christ and Graziani, he said, "You know, you always want to have two kinds of soup. You know, available." And you know, and that's and they, they were the perfect embodiment of them. They were two different kinds of Ford, but Fords, but they worked well together, and they made so much more happen. I mean, this team's probably the years that this team has been best offensively is when they had both those guys. Yeah, if you remember, the league purchased Graziani for about $2 million, but he only played two games for New England before the trade, and then comes to Dallas and he scores four goals in eight games. But really, oh, yeah. that year it was the playoffs he went crazy because um, he opens the scoring in game one against the defending champs, right? And then he gets the game winner in game three. And then in round two, uh, he scores um, – uh, excuse me, scores in the loss, uh, the opening loss, and then he has a brace in game two, which they win. So, um, I mean, honestly, that that stretch of when he got here is pretty much the hottest run by a player I can remember uh, in Dallas history. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the thing about it is is that even beyond that, if you look at what he did in 2000, 2001, I mean, the guy was still knocking in the goals. I mean, was he knocking them in the way that he did towards the end of 99? No. But, I mean... I think I think you and I and every other FC Dallas fan would almost kill somebody to have mm, yeah. a, 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 a guy that can reliably score double-digit goals the way he did uh, right about now. Now, the fact that he only scored, you know, he, didn't, he wasn't scoring in the blistering pace that he was in 99, you know, he, I think a lot of that spoiled a lot of us, but, you know, he was still a very productive scorer. And... Um, you know, and, and like I said, he, he, I mean, it was one of those, it was one of those, uh, trades where you really, I mean, this team really gave up a lot, but they got a lot in return. Yeah. And, and, you know, that, that 99 season was, you know, partially the Christ season in my mind, partially the Christ season for all the reasons that you listed, but also partially the uh, Graziani season because I think if uh, Graziani doesn't get to Dallas in midseason that year, I think ultimately they 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 run a really big risk of running out of gas as everybody and their brother starts devoting all this extra attention to to Jason, and then oh you know then there just wasn't this uh, scoring 
um, it, beyond Jason, you know, uh, to, to actually pick up the slack until Graziani got here. And so I, that's, you know, I kind of think of, yeah, that, I mean, Jason Christ is basically the face of that season because of all, everything he did and no one can ever take that away. But I don't even think that Jason is Jason that season. If, uh, Graziani doesn't come come to town and you know basically take a lot of the heat off. Well, we can't finish ninety nine without putting a bow on the season by talking about the game three against Chicago in the first round of playoffs. For, for a lot of people in MLS, not just FC Dallas, MLS period, for about a decade, this was considered the greatest game in MLS history. And I think it holds up even now as one of the great games of all time. Six minutes yeah, into it, that game, let me set the stage for you. Six minutes into okay, that game, right. right? The fire is already up to nothing because Razov scores and Marsh scores. Okay? So we get into the second half. Chad Deering scores a goal 10 minutes into the second half. Somewhere on the long, along the way, Dima Kovalenko breaks Brandon Pollard's leg. And then nope, in a 10-minute... That was game two. That was game two? thought that was game yep. three. Well, yep. either no, way, you set the tone for that game because Dima broke Brandon's leg uh, in the game before then, right? So now we're late into game three, and it's still 2-1, and there's a 10-minute window in the back end of the game. Zarco scores and Graziano scores to win the game and eliminate the Fire who were the defending champs. So I remember at watching this game going just absolutely crazy when this comeback happened. And as I said, for many people, it's the greatest game uh, in franchise history and for a long time in MLS history. Yeah, and I, I will still... I, I don't want to say I will fight anybody who says that it's not the greatest game in MLS history, but I think a lot of the I think that what a lot of people put up as better games than this uh, is a, it's a lot of recency bias because I mean I remember after that second goal went in I was just so defeated I mean the burn had won game one. I was like, all right, we're on our way. And then game two in Chicago, it was 4 nothing Chicago. It was a first-rate ass-whooping of the highest order. And, you know, and Brandon Pollard's leg gets broken by Dama Kovalenko. So there, there is no way you, at that point, you know, it's like, okay, we still got one more game to, 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 to make this happen, you know. And so it comes back to Dallas, and as you, point, as you mentioned, Chicago's up 2 nothing really quickly. And at that point, I'm, I'm so defeated because, like, <laughs> oh, God, these guys are going to – these guys are just going to – are, are, are going to roll over us. And I remember after that second goal, the crowd is deflated and just silent. And Oscar Perea, I will always remember this, is up near the center circle, and he's just waving his hands up to, for the crowd to, like, come on, let me hear you. You know, he's just waving his hands up. And so, you know, we're all like, okay, let's go. We start doing our thing again in the stands. And, you know, okay, nothing's happening in the – you know, initially, and then as you as you point out, we get get the one goal, and then the second goal, it was a penalty, and and the penalty comes off of. I, I think in any other circumstance, we would say, oh, it was a kind of a harsh penalty on on the fire, 
because I can't remember who's uh, taking a shot, but C.J. Brown is sliding to block it, and it goes. He's got his arm in kind of a position, but what you the sort of position that would seem kind of natural for anybody who's sliding at that moment, and it comes off of his arm. Referee, I can't remember who the referee is, points to the spot, and at that point we're like, everybody's going crazy, you know, because all right, you know, and then you know Zarko puts it in, and so yeah, yeah, it's it's two, it's it's two two now, and all right, we we can get him in the shootout. And then, as you you know, remember, we uh, Graziani scores the winner, and at that point, I don't think that I think that you know that game was. If I could bottle how I felt after that game, I would, you know, that would be that would be something that I would open up. Every time I feel I feel <laughs> bad about something, and it would instantly make me feel a thousand percent better, because it was pure joy, pure ecstasy, and I think that is when, if if that if that uh, if that last second win in '98 was where the uh, the Brimstone Cup was uh, conceived, I think that that game is where it was actually born. Yeah, because I mean, it was I mean, because it was just blood and guts from both teams for three games and Dallas pulls it out the way that it did. I think that's where the rivalry was born, because I'm sure that Chicago fans, the ones that were around 20 years ago, they they will feel to this day that. You know the the call against C.J. Brown was harsh, and uh, <laughs> you know where you know the Dallas got lucky in that game, et cetera, et cetera. And they still hate Ariel Graziani uh, irrationally, from in my view, but uh, maybe not so irrationally in their view. Uh, <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> but that game is pretty much where it was born. I mean, it's like, oh yeah, forget Kansas City; these are the guys we hate. Uh, especially since by that point, Ken, uh, Ron Newman, I think, had already moved on and the, the the Wizards were a lot less hateable. Well, there's a reason why that game was number one on our list of games we thought that the uh, FC Dallas should broadcast during this And it's window. amazing to me, yeah, it's amazing to me that, the, you know, that the list of games that they're broadcasting, you know, is, like, is you know, 25 years of history and all of them are like in the, yeah. from the last like four years. Well, hopefully, hopefully we'll get a chance to see some more. All right, Dustin, listen, I'm having a fantastic time. We're already well over an hour, so here's what I want to do. I want to shut this one down uh, and as an individual episode part one, and then we're going to do a part two to finish up the burn era. Uh, for you guys listening, anybody out there, that if you're enjoying this podcast or any of our other podcasts, or if you like the work we do on the website or Twitter or Facebook or whatever, consider supporting us on Patreon, as Dustin suggested patreon.com slash third degree and we'll be back and it won't be instantaneously but within a couple of days you'll have part two up of this interview hopefully you're enjoying the history of the burn and we'll see you again on the next podcast of third degree